What is going on, everybody? Welcome to A Theology of Hustle. This is episode 82, and today I'm talking to Nicole. Now, we actually found out about Nicole because she works with a ministry that we've known for a long time called the Hideaway Experience. It does uh, marriage retreats at these amazing locations all over the all over the country. And uh, so my wife, JJ, found out about her through that. And uh, we came to find out she was putting out a book. And so it seemed like a no brainer uh, that we know somebody at the Hideaway Experience. We know somebody coming out with a book to bring them on the podcast. That's how we roll. And y'all, this interview just does not disappoint. So Nicole is a uh, licensed marriage and family therapist. And we talk about that, but her book from lost to found, uh, I got a chance to read and it is so good and sort of details her entire life through this story of being a, uh, licensed marriage and family therapist. And, and like, it's just so good. She, the way she's vulnerable in this book while teaching like incredible lessons she has walked through, uh, along with her husband, some of the, the depths of sorrow and, and, and joys and all that shared in her book. And so we get, I think really in depth in this interview, I think you're going to really like uh, hearing about uh, all of her amazing experiences and all of her uh, wisdom and insight. It's just a, it's a great all around uh, interview. And we do talk about the hideaway experience and the, uh, the amazing ministry it does for uh, marriages out there. So you just, you kind of get it all in this interview. So I'm going to encourage you to check out all of her links uh, from lost to found is a book that you uh, must have. It is so inspiring and it's, it's just, there's a lot of depth. There's so much depth to it, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. And so you should know that my wife, JJ, even is on the launch team of this book. And so uh, the Blandfords are sort of all in on this thing. And so we really believe in it. We think it's uh, amazing, and I think you're really going to enjoy it, too. Before we get to the interview, though, uh, I just want to remind you to make sure you're following me at Theology of Hustle on Instagram and Facebook. And it is much appreciated if you would uh, leave a rating and review on iTunes or whatever app you use. Just helps get the word out about a theology of hustle so more people find out about what we got going on here. So, uh, yeah, I really hope you enjoy hearing from Nicole. Well, Nicole, I can't say thanks enough for coming on the podcast. Excited to chat a little bit. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. For sure. Um, Let's just jump off and just have you give a quick uh, intro to who you are. Sure. So my name is Nicole. I am a marriage and family therapist. Um, That's sort of my main job. Um, And that entails mostly a part-time private practice in Greenwich, Connecticut, just outside New York City. And then about three or four times a year, I uh, lead some marriage intensives with an organization called the Hideaway Foundation. Um, And there's several different locations for that. Um, I am primarily in Georgia. Um, so that's a four day marriage intensive with five couples. Um, and I get to do that about four times a year, really enjoy that. Um, and then I'm also a writer in between. So (laughs) when I, in the wee hours of the morning or nap time or whenever that happens, um, I have managed to to write a book that's coming out in January called From Lost to Found. I love it. Uh, just a few things going on. No big deal. Yeah, right? yeah, just, yeah. yeah. Plus, you know, yeah. parenting two little boys, and <laughs> <laughs> which is constant. Yes. Yeah, that is a, that is a nonstop. <laughs> yes. One. Yeah. 
get that. Um, okay, so let's talk about uh, how you got found yourself becoming a uh, LMFT uh, in sure. this whole this whole world. Yeah, so um, I entered college not really knowing what I wanted to do. I know some people do. I was not one of those. Um, but I felt a lot of pressure to, you know, pick a major that made sense and would, you know, allow me to earn a living. And so I chose business cause it seemed the most practical. And I mean, my husband would tell you, so not a fit for, for my, <laughs> I mean, I am good with numbers, but that's about it. Um, just not a fit for my personality or calling at all. And um, at my particular college, most sophomores go abroad um, for the entire year, actually. So there's hardly any sophomores on campus, which is kind mm. of unusual. Um, and so I was in this house with 50 other college students uh, from Pepperdine, which is where I went. And I just sort of found myself in a lot of deep one-on-one conversations. It's a year where a lot of a lot of us do a lot of, you know, soul searching and processing and you're away from home for a really extended period of time and you're really far away. So that brings up all sorts of stuff for people. And it just so happened that the faculty family that went with us for the year was the head of the psychology and sociology department. And she had sort of been watching me all year. And I think it didn't occur to me that I might want to be a therapist because I loved it so much. Just not that I was in a formal therapy role, but just loved that deep one-on-one kind of conversation that often centered around family of origin or whatnot. Mm. And to this day, she swears she's never done this before and she doesn't really understand why she did it with me. But (laughs) I think it was like the last week we were there, we went out to coffee and it was just the two of us. And she said, are you sure you don't want to be a therapist? And it was like the light bulb, like God just flipped a switch through her. Mm. And I'm so grateful if I'm the only one she's ever done that for. I'm grateful he picked me because I think it really took somebody else highlighting that for me to realize, oh my goodness, yes, I do. Um, And I've never looked back. I switched my major um, just in the nick of time and um, went straight into graduate school. I went to Fuller Seminary loved the work that I was doing and what I was learning. So God was gracious to really affirm that along in my journey. Yeah, that's cool. Um, This will be a tricky interview, I think, because the book kind of details your story, which is sort of what we're going to be walking through here Uh now. But there was a, uh, I want to like jump to maybe like the next part of your story because there was some trepidation at some point though as to whether that was, you know, actually you're calling is yes. like, you're not getting, uh, you're not getting jobs like you thought you would or something yes. like that. And there's this quote that you have, I think a friend told you, like, if you're called, you're called, right. Or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you just speak to sort of like what it meant for you to like feel called to like be a therapist? Yeah. So I think one of the things when I was, um, in California was that along with God calling me to that, I was always very affirmed by other people in that calling. Mm. I was sort of in this position where if I worked hard enough, I could get the internship I wanted. I, um, 
if I had the faith of the people that I thought were really impressive, then I could feel like I was confident in doing my work. And when I moved across the country for my husband's job, that was sort of the beginning of God's graciousness and pulling out the rug from underneath me. Um, and part of that was I just picked back up where I left off and tried to impress people and get their confidence so that I could feel confident. And I thought that if I could win them over with how impressive I was, then I could feel both valuable and secure in doing what I was doing. And as you read in the book, it definitely didn't happen that way. <laughs> and I, I, I think it's a chapter four where I talk about this, where I just have this really painful interaction with somebody that I really wanted um, to have confidence in me as a therapist. And she basically looked at me and said, you know, people are going to take one look at you and think you have absolutely nothing of value to say. Mm. And that just crushed me. I mean, obviously a very hurtful thing for someone to say, and probably anyone's feelings would be hurt, but the level to which it crushed me. Um, I think I wrote in the book when she shut the door, it felt like my identity was left inside. Like I had placed my identity so in the hands of other people's opinion. And I did what I normally do when that happens is I phoned a friend to sort of rebut whatever <laughs> that painful thing was, hoping that she would correct that. And I found her answer really unsatisfying at the time. And because you were right, what she said was, when you're called, you're called. Mm. And I wanted her to tell me, no, you're perfect for this. Look at all these qualities you have. Uh, look at all that you've accomplished. That means that you are right for the job. Yeah. And instead, she sort of turned me to put my faith in my calling and what that taught me is we don't need human permission to run on God's mission. Hmm. If he has called us, then he has gone before us and equipped us. Um, and I started, again, God was gracious to kind of turn me to thinking about characters in the Bible. And not only was there an endless list of people that didn't make sense for the job they were called to do. But I actually couldn't think of anybody he used that was like perfect for the job in terms of human understanding. Um, and that, that was just, again, affirmation that it's an, it's an invitation to depend more on him. Um, and I want my work to speak to the God that I know, not my own strength and accomplishments. And quite honestly, my strength is no match for God moving through my weakness. Um, it just feels a lot less comfortable. <laughs> um, but I'm really grateful that I had that experience because I'll be honest with you. I have a tendency to turn back to wanting to be perfect for the job, yeah. um, in my human way. But even with the launch of this book and how vulnerable that can be in this season, yeah. I'm just, God's reminding me again, you know, I'm going to do with this book what I want to do with it, regardless yeah. of what you do or don't do. Yeah. Um, and that is not comfortable for me. No, no. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, it's just not a comfortable place to be in, no, right? Because not. we we want control. I mean, at the end of the day, and uh, God is uh, very rare. Well, God just doesn't want you to have control, no. honestly. You know, no, and thank God um, we don't, honestly. Right? Yeah, I know we would make a big mess of it. We right? would. I know I would. Uh, yeah. No, I I totally agree. I I yeah that part. I mean, a lot of the parts really spoke to me, but that part, you know, it, it is so easy to like get caught up because you need that like external, um, you know, external encouragement or whatever mm-hmm. in order to know, you know, like I truly am supposed to be doing what I'm doing. Cause when, when it doesn't look like you thought it was going to look like, it can be really easy to like get bogged down in all the questions. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. So what, but what was it that sort of gave you confidence in that? calling uh that you had as a as a therapist you know i can't explain it any other way than i just knew i was so sure that god had called me to that at my age being as young as i was at the time especially and i'm super grateful for that assurance in my heart i don't know that I can think of any other time in my life other than maybe who I married (laughs) Um, where I just had such a peace that that was the right calling for me, even if there was nothing else affirming it. So that's really the only thing that kept me going. Had I not had that, I think I would have really questioned. Um, I do also think I had, well, I know I had mentors, um, and people in my life that did call out those gifts in me. Um, even acknowledging, of course you have room to grow as a therapist. We'd be worried if you didn't, um, (laughs) at, you know, 23 years old or however old I was at the time, but, um, just affirming those gifts in me and seeing, vision for me in my life when I couldn't see it for myself. I have a friend that calls those dream defenders, um, that we all need those people in our lives that when we can't see it, (laughs) um, I just had one in my living room a few minutes ago. Um, but a friend, basically a friend to say, no, I see it and it's okay. If you can't see it, I'm just going to encourage you to keep your back foot in front and trust that it's there, even if you don't see it. Um, so that would be the other element of what has kept me going. (laughs) Yeah, no, I love that. I think that's helpful. Uh, it can be such a nebulous sort of thing, you know, Mm -hmm. like working out, uh, what God has for you sometimes. Right. Absolutely. Um, okay. So I want to talk about being a marriage and family therapist, but I'd like to take two tracks if that's all right. Yeah, totally. Okay, cool. I'd like to talk first about, uh, your private practice Uh and then, go into the more intensives if we could yeah. uh, after that. So uh, can you just talk about what it, what does it mean to be a marriage and family therapist? Yeah. So it means different things for different people, depending on specialties and uh, focuses. I, for me, it's looked like about a third of my practice is couples. Um, some of that is premarital couples. Some of that is couples that have been married 30 years, uh, five years, you know, kind of the whole spectrum. Um, and, and to be honest, some of that is couples in crisis and some of that is couples that, um, just want to go from what we call good to great that they've noticed they've, there's maybe one issue that they'd like to get ironed out before it becomes a bigger issue. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that's really the best time to come to therapy. It's always a good time, but, right. um, I love doing that work cause there's so much opportunity. Um, unfortunately a lot of people aren't motivated to pay for therapy before right. it gets really, um, to that crisis point, which mm-hmm. can be more, just more to deal with yeah. more layers to sift through. Um, and then another third of my practice is adult individuals, working on a variety of issues. I think it mostly boils down to issues around identity, what makes me valuable, what makes me significant, Um, and then issues around security and safety. Like, am I empowered um, to make changes in my life, even if I can't control everything? Or how do I feel secure in an unsafe world in a situation that I can't change? So broadly, those are kind of the main topics that most clients boil down to. Um, and then I also work with adolescents, which keeps me on my toes. <laughs> um, it's really, really fun work and really challenging work. And um, so about a third of my practices is, is adolescents or college students. Okay. Nice. Um, okay. So uh, what, uh... So yeah, what is a what does a normal sort of day look like? Like seeing individual clients and sort of uh, working through like how many clients do you see in a day? <laughs> uh, since I had my first son, who's almost four, I really try and pack it in um, so that I could be home with my boys on a lot of days of the week. Um, so on a Wednesday, which is my really big day, I could see up to 12. Um, and that's like coffee in hand snacks by my chair, you know, (laughs) like we're in it to win it kind of day. I, most people do not see that many in a day. And I probably wouldn't choose to do that if I didn't have littles at home. Right. Um, but I have trained myself to be able to do that well. (laughs) Um, so that would be like the max. Uh, I would say a typical day for me is probably between six and 12, depending on what time I go in. And, um, they're about 45 to 50 minute sessions. So I do have, you know, 10, 15 minute breaks in between clients typically. Um, And to me, it's been an exercise in knowing, you know, where I, where I end, what I can offer and then trusting God to do the rest. I think Mm. I really struggle sometimes with becoming overly responsible, um, particularly if that inadequacy button has been hit for me, which is something that I talk about in the book that. I have a tendency to think I can control more than I can or put pressure on myself to control more than I can. Um, and therapy is such a partnership. (laughs) Uh, it's a partnership between me and the client. I will work as hard as a client's willing to work, but I cannot work harder. Um, because ultimately we're all responsible for the change we want to make in our own lives. Um, and it reminds me of that question that Jesus asks, the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, like, do you want to be healed? And that's a question he asks all of us. And we have to do the work of getting up and, and learning to walk. And I also am so aware that, um, of the Holy Spirit's work when I'm in the room, 
it is so not about me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and when I remember that therapy usually goes a lot better. Um, mm. if nothing else, just how I feel in the room. Um, but you know, he is absolutely at work and I pray for that. Try and remember to pray for that before every session. Yeah. Um, if nothing else to put my mind and, and heart in that space. Yeah. That's good. You actually answered my next question, which oh, was the, the role. Of, um, but you don't see only uh, Christian clients, nope. correct? Are you okay? So, how do you feel like that interaction sort of works? You know, because I mean, you're you know, I know counsel. My wife is the same way. She's a Christian, but doesn't see all Christian count, yep. uh, clients. And so, how do you feel like the interaction happens there with God and like working with people who you know may not know Jesus and and that sort of thing? Yeah, it's a really good question because obviously it's so helpful when we do have spiritual resources. Um, back to what I was talking about earlier, that whole identity and safety piece. Obviously, God has a lot to say about our identity and what makes us significant. Right. He also, we have a much better understanding of our safety in God's economy when we have spiritual resources, even if we don't feel safe in a particular situation on this earth. Um, so it's really helpful when a client does have that. Um, but I'm grateful to work with a model that I love. It's called restoration therapy. It was developed by my mentors, Terry and Sharon Hargrave, and it's a fantastic model. They're Christians. So it's you know, harmonious with faith. Um, and works great in that conversation, but it also works really well um, with clients who do not have a faith. And really, it comes down to there's multiple sources of, of um, truth in being able, obviously, God is the author of all truth, and we know that. But if a client is able to tell themselves the truth, um, mm. regardless of whether they have that faith resource and answer very real feelings, but feelings that may not tell themselves the truth about who they are or their safety. Mm. Um, so definitely the feelings are real and need to be honored, but there's a huge difference between feelings being real and feelings being true. So, mm if I'm working with a client that does not have a faith, empowering them to be able to answer that lie, um, the real feeling, but the lie with what is true about their identity and sense of safety. Hmm. And then how do you want to walk differently if that's true? Um, so I'm kind of describing a lot of therapy in a few short sentences here, but well, was a good job. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> um, but yeah, essentially with every client, I'm looking to identify how their story has shaped the kind of pain that they feel when they're in a painful situation. Because you and I could go through the exact same situation. And based on my history and my story, I might feel inadequate or not good enough. And you might feel alone and unsafe, even though the situation looks the same, just based on how our stories have shaped our pain. And then next, we want to identify how we tend to protect ourselves from that pain that's totally understandable and maybe at one time was necessary, mm. 
but is no longer helpful in our interactions with ourselves and other people now. Um, So those are those defense mechanisms. And the four main buckets are shame, blame, control, and escape. And then we, we really dig in and do some experiential stuff usually um, in helping the client answer that pain with the truth and then laying down those defenses and doing something that's more peaceful and connecting. Um, so though that's essentially the four things we're looking to do over the course of therapy. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, I'm like processing. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there was a, there was a profound statement you had in the book. I think it was towards the end and you just talked about pain mm. and how pain I, I think you said uh, pain, <laughs> pain makes us selfish or something mm-hmm. along those lines. Can you talk just a little bit about some of that? Yeah, I think what you might be referring to is um, pain has a way of making us to where our situation and our pain is the only thing that we can see. Right. Um, right. And it's impossible for us when we're in that space to recognize that other people have had pain, it might look different than ours. Mm-hmm. Um, but to be human, unfortunately is to experience that pain into some level or in some way. And so pain f- for me and my story, I've recognized when I'm really in that deep hole, uh, it, it can be all I can see. And it keeps me from, hearing other people. It keeps me from seeing other people and their pain. Um, I think I may have written this a a bit about this in the marriage chapter toward the end of the book, um, Mm -hmm. where my husband and I, during our darkest season, were both just hurting uh, in different ways around the same situation. And when you're hurting to that degree, you go into survival mode. Um, an analogy I often use when I talk about this is it's a little bit like trying to save a drowning person. Mm. They're not necessarily trying to hurt the person who's saving them. They're likely not, but it's actually a really dangerous thing to do to save, try and save a drowning person because all that drowning person is thinking about is how can I survive? Mm. Um, and they're unintentionally hurting people around them when they're in that survival mode because survival is all they can see. And that's exactly what my husband and I were doing to each other. Um, I won't speak for him, but that's certainly what I was doing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, is just sort of reacting out of my pain, uh, to survive it and not really having any regard for how that was impacting him or other people. Yeah, I think that's just such a profound uh, way to think about it because mm-hmm. pain really does it. Like, it's it's it lies maybe, uh, yeah. or it's and it's like no one can possibly understand what you're going through. Yes. Like they just don't get it, you know. And it's like you just keep telling yourself these things over and over and over again until they become like truth and like the only way you sort of know how to how to respond yeah Yeah. and it's very isolating to your point if we assume that no one can possibly understand then we're unwilling to hear from anybody else and we're unwilling to share with anybody else yeah yeah what are the ways that i mean in your opinion what are the ways that people can sort of move past that and like see 
you know, see some of that, um, you know, other people's pain or, you know, um, I think it takes a willingness to understand. Yes. The specific pain that we feel, but also the things that we are doing Mm -hmm. that are again, understandable, but not helpful. Mm -hmm. And it takes a willingness to own what I call the pain cycle, which is just that the, the feelings we tend to feel and then what we tend to do to be able to say, to kind of call ourselves out a little bit (laughs) and say, I have really good reasons for feeling these things, but choosing to engage in this pain cycle is not helpful to my pain, first of all. And it's certainly not helpful to my relationships with other people. And so it's a, it's a willingness to get that down on paper and say, this is no longer working for me. And I have agency or a sense of choice around what I, what I do with this. Um, and this is my responsibility. I think for a long time, and I still struggle with this at times, but for a long time, I sort of thought that my peace and my joy were going to be found on the far side of a dream realized or a problem solved, um, a goal achieved, (laughs) you know, when, when the storm was over, Hmm. I could be at peace. And a huge part of what I learned through writing this book and the experiences that I talk about in it is that peace and joy is for everyone right now. Mm. Um, and that may not mean happy circumstances. That may not mean the life that you were hoping for um, in a given season, but it is ours for the taking um, mm. because Every season that inflames our longing for Christ and provides an opportunity to grow is a season where there's goodness. And anytime we draw closer to to Jesus in that place, there's opportunity for transformation and for us to be more like him. And I'm talking about it from a faith perspective um, in that way. But that's what I've recognized as uh so important if you want to kind of get outside yourself, <laughs> um, yeah. to where your whole world is, is the pain that you're choosing to live in. Yeah. 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 That's good. I'm, uh, yeah, that's really good stuff. I, I feel like it's so easy to live in that world where like the next, like living for the next thing to sort of make you happy, like Mm -hmm. at all times, you know? And it's like, if I could just get to that next level, like Mm -hmm. you said, goal or whatever, that finally it'll all come together and I'll be happy. And we let, we live this life where we're never like truly present in any moment because we're searching for like a future happiness from a external source. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's good stuff. It's, uh, Yeah. It's good. It's really good stuff. And then go see a therapist, right? Once you've realized all yes, that stuff. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes. And, yeah. and a good therapist can help you identify what that pain cycle is, even if they don't use the specific model that I'm talking about. Um, and, and then insights only half the battle. You yeah. know, I think a, a lot of therapists might stop there and say, well, just don't do that. <laughs> right. Um, right. Insights are really important important piece because we have to know what it is that we're taking off. Um, but like that verse in Ephesians, you know, taking off the old and putting on the new, 
we also have to identify what it is that we're putting on. Hmm. Um, and that means that truth and that new behavior that leads to peace and connection. And so really mapping out that peace cycle, which is what is the truth about those feelings? And because there's a huge difference between feeling inadequate and being inadequate, yeah. uh, for example, or feeling alone and being alone. So what is the truth? And then what do I want to do differently? And then a question I love to ask myself and my clients is, and what does that look like right now? Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, we can kind of get general with, you know, I need to relax or I need to connect with other people or, <laughs> um, yeah. and I like to challenge myself and other people to say, and in the next five minutes, what does that look like, hmm. you know, right now? Um, and then do it because <laughs> that's how our brain learns that new neural pathway. Hmm. That's good. That's good. Uh, and to me, it speaks to an, an earlier point that you had talked about, which is, um, like, marriages, you don't a lot of times see people coming to your practice until the marriage has sort of fallen apart, right? It's on like, unfortunately, uh, yeah, yeah, right. And it's the same way with people in, in general, right? I'm sure you don't yep. see most people until their life is in crisis. And yeah. by that point, uh, you've lived with these pain cycles so long, yeah. you don't even know how to like stop, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like digging through it all. I, mm -hmm. I it's one of those things like, so it's never too, uh, too early, right? To like no. go and see somebody and sort of dig through some of this. Yeah. No, it's never too late. And it's definitely never too early. <laughs> <laughs> well, cause we still, I mean, even today we, uh, we talk about it a lot, but I think there's still a, a major taboo around going and seeing somebody, you know, and yeah. Uh, and, uh, there's, there's still stigma around it. I think, especially depending on where you live in the country, um, different areas have different thought processes around it. Um, yeah, right. But also, you know, the this is a whole nother conversation, but the, you know, insurance and the medical yeah, community right. hasn't quite caught on to this being an essential part of our wellness. And so often it can be costly and I get that. And so people tend to wait until it's bad enough to where they're willing to pay. But the investment is so much better when it's earlier on. Yeah. It's interesting that we talk so much about physical health and no one just assumes that you're physically healthy by kind of doing nothing. Right. Like, right. Hey, but mental health, it's like, yeah, it's, it's like assumed that it's fine until, yep. you know, it's not. And you're like, wait, but if, you know, you yeah. have to be doing things to invest in that mental health, just like your physical health. Absolutely. If yeah. you want weeds in your garden, you just do nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, as my uh, garden this summer uh, can attest. Is, so. Yeah, yeah. Same. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, good stuff. Um, okay, let's jump into some of your more intensive work because I'm super interested in hearing about that. Yeah, I love to talk about that. Uh, so what is the, who is it that you uh, work with? And then, you know, can you give all the kind of background behind what yes. you do? So it's this wonderful organization um, called The Hideaway Experience, and they started in Texas. It's this wonderful couple. Just love them. Their name is uh, Steve and Rajan Trafton, yeah. um, and they have a really cool story about uh, what inspired them starting this ministry. Um, but the original Texas location actually takes place in their second home. Um, mm -hmm. So they opened up their own home to run this. And it's four days. Um, that location is 
four couples, it's four or five couples, depending on the location and what the facility can uh, manage. And they subsequently started this Atlanta area with Rome, Georgia location, and then a San Diego area um, location. So those are the three at this point. I think there's about 20 of us on staff Hmm. and we rotate uh, in each of the locations. So there's a Texas team and they all rotate. There's a Georgia team. We all rotate. And then there's a California team and they rotate. And so it's me and a therapist that I partner with. So there's two of us, uh, which is really, really fun. Uh, Cause couples get the benefit of hearing our stories a little bit and drawing from two very different experiences from two very different therapists. Yeah. Um, and we do the ther- the therapy is mostly group therapy, which sounds terrifying to people. <laughs> but I kid you not, I have yet to have, and I've done this quite a few times, I have yet to go where it doesn't end up being the group's favorite part mm-hmm. um, by the end of the time. Because the benefit of group therapy, especially when you only have four days, is that hearing other people's stories and hearing therapists work with other people helps you process your own story and your own pain so much more efficiently and in in a way that might not be possible if it were just you and the therapist. Um, So it really enriches the therapeutic experience. Um, We something that's unique to this intensive. We also eat together. Um, so the therapists don't have like their own staff room or, (laughs) uh, we are, uh, spending all day, um, either in the therapy room or enjoying meals together with these couples. Um, and it is what many would describe as a thin place where heaven just seems a little bit closer. Um, It's, it's one of those transcendent experiences and I just love being a part of it. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. I love this. I don't know if we've talked about this, uh, but this is like a small world moment because Steve and Rajan are like close family friends of, of ours from like way back oh, in the day. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness. So, so my, you uh, know how wonderful they oh, are. Oh yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> no, like, so my in-laws are like, have been best friends with them like forever. So oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. My wife grew up with, you know, their kids and all that stuff. So Yeah. What they have started and and spent the last several years building is just incredible. I feel like I have a front row seat to God's miracle working. So it's pretty fun. Well, and that's it's so cool to see it on this side of things because, you know, we were sort of around as it was starting and you like kind of okay. have the, you know, you have the like at their ranch and all that stuff, you kind of yes. know what's going on a little bit and you know, it's a marriage intensive, but to hear from, you know, a therapist who's actually in the, in the, uh-huh. the sessions is really exciting. I think, uh, because it is such a, uh, uh, an amazing thing that they, that, that they have going on. You know? It is. It um, is. Because I mean, when you go to an intensive like this, I mean, um, this isn't your garden variety sort of marriage therapy, I guess. Is that true? No, it's, it's, um, so we use the same model that I was referring to earlier, which is restoration therapy. It's just, you have the benefit of four, four consecutive days 
And as much as I love my private practice work and I see miracles there too and find that fulfilling and rewarding, there is something about the hours being able to build on each other (laughs) when they're consecutive versus having a week between each hour Hmm. um, that is so much more uh, beneficial for most, in most cases. Um, and you're also there in a sequestered environment. So the only thing and the hospitality is out of this world. I mean, (laughs) for us as therapists, it is for the couples, it is, it's just out of this world that that is a value of theirs and they do it very well. Mm. Um, and part of that is not only to feel loved on and, uh, for the couples to just kind of soak in that uh, that safe truth while they're there, um, but also because we don't want couples to have to worry about anything right. else. Other, we want all their energy to be able to be spent on their relationship and processing their own story and how it has impacted their relationship. Mm. Um, because the reality of it is I walk down the aisle with a story in my pain cycle long before I ever met my husband. Sure, right. And he stood at the front of that grassy lawn with the same thing. And yet, because it's the most intimate relationship we have on earth, you know, it gets tangled. Our pain cycles get yeah. tangled with each other. And so yeah. it is one of the most unique experiences I have ever witnessed as these four days and being able to watch couples process all of this in such a short period of time. Yeah. Well, cause you're also stepping into stories that are, uh, very difficult too. Yep. Right. I yep. mean, these are like, um, situations where it's, it's gotten most of the time. Yeah. Very, very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, mo- and there are some that are there, you know, for a tune up or they've okay. just recognized, over, you know, several years, they may have drifted a bit, but there hasn't been a crisis. Um, some couples, maybe their relationship is pretty strong, but them as a couple have just weathered, weathered a lot of tragedy mm, and, yeah. um, that can bring up pain cycles, <laughs> even though it's not, the conflict didn't start between the couple. Yeah. Um, and then there's some that are just in crisis and really, need that intensive experience to focus on it. Um, so I would say at almost every intensive, we have a pretty wide gamut, mm, but a lot of it, a, a lot of the couples come in in a pretty, um, tough spot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's just, I, that's very intimidating sounding to me personally. <laughs> like it just, it just sounds like I wouldn't know what to do. You know what I mean? Like as uh, a therapist. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. just so much to sort of like, uh, break down and sort of like weeding through the yuck and, you know, um, yeah. Well, that's the beauty of this model is it really focuses in on what matters and the group component helps it go, you know, it expedites the processing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, you know, we are so aware we pray with Steven or Jan every morning. Mm. Um, we don't share anything confidential with sure. them. Uh, but they, you know, we know that they are praying for us and that the Holy Spirit's moving through us. Cause that's the only way anything's going to get done during those yeah. four days. So we are very aware <laughs> of 
of our dependence on God to move during those four days. And honestly, that's part of why I love it is I've learned that that overwhelm is an opportunity um, because we, we need Christ the same all the time, but those overwhelm moments are, give us the gift of understanding it (laughs) in the moment. Um, and so, you know, what knocks you off your feet will bring you to your knees. And I, I think sometimes those intensive experiences where that happens, you just get to see God move in ways that you could have never anticipated or written for yourself. Hmm. Yeah. Could you say that what you just said there is like a, is a, is a microcosm of, uh, sort of the reason you even wrote the book, like kind of to begin with, you know, just, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I think I certainly got knocked off my feet (laughs) as you read about. Um, and the move was really just the tip of the iceberg and in the very beginning of, of a season that could largely be characterized by change and loss. Um, and I'm in a situation where, there's no solve, um, particularly for the multiple miscarriages that we've experienced in the last several years. But, and I really believe this on the far side or even in the midst of pain, we don't prefer, we will find transformation that we would not trade. Mm. Um, and this is not the story I would choose to write for myself if you gave me the choice today, I'd, I'd probably say I'm out <laughs> uh, of, of, you know, the miscarriages and all the change and loss that we've experienced. But if I have to go through it, goodness, are there treasures to take with me? Um, it is the, it is a story that I think I write this in, in my acknowledgement section at the end of the book. It's the story that threw me back into the arms of God. And I never, I never lost my faith. I never stopped believing in him, but I carried some misconceived notions about who he was and our relationship. And it's the story that allowed me to get acquainted with his character in a new way Mm -hmm. Um, and to know more of him and to let him come into more places in my heart um, that I had sort of been filling and numbing with other things. I call those the props to my faith. <laughs> mm, <laughs> I yeah. had a faith, but it was also supported by other people's approval and getting what I wanted and mm. all these other things. And when those were stripped away, I found a new relationship with him and I would not trade it. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Uh, I love that. Uh, I'm like sitting here, trying to process as you're talking. So, uh, yeah, no, it's just, uh, it's good. It's good stuff. And it is like, man, those seasons where like, there's a lot of pain or loss or even just seasons where things aren't going like you hoped that they would. Sure. It can be so easy to just, I don't know, get caught up, you know, Mm -hmm. and just, yeah. Uh, question the goodness of God, you know? Um, yeah. So I think that's good stuff. Uh, I would love maybe if you have any insights, I know infertility and, and, uh, miscarriages were a big part of your story and uh, we're in a, a, uh, we're in an adoption and foster care community that infertility plays a huge role in sort of a lot of people's stories. Um, could you just speak to some of that stuff and how you sort of 
have have processed some of that in your life if you're comfortable absolutely absolutely um yeah i i I describe it that you know we've experienced five miscarriages to date um with you know the definite possibility of more yeah um and you know some infertility seasons of infertility as well and I describe it that they've all been equally painful, but they've all kind of been painful for different reasons um, and have God has kind of revealed something in me or um, about him in the midst of them that's different. And so I think one of the one of the ones that really stayed with me is, you know, I I prayed so hard for this baby or for these babies that they would be OK And I knew to go to God for that. And I continued to say, you know, my hope is in you. My hope is in you. And then one day it just popped into my head. I have no idea what prompted this question in my mind, but I suddenly stopped and said, my hope is in you for what? Mm. And I like, how would I finish that sentence? (laughs) And it became very clear, not that I, regretted or, or even now think that it's wrong to ask for things from God. But I think we're missing out when we stop there. Hmm. Um, because obviously I'm still going to pray that each pregnancy is safe and healthy and okay. But that is not the gift itself is not where my hope is. Um, and it's great that we're having this conversation after the lighting of the hope candle with advent because i always do a lot of thinking this week around where our hope is and um i i realized that i was using god as the power source for my plans Hmm. my own plans (laughs) rather than like i knew i needed him but i sort of used him as like okay so make this happen please Yeah. um and really what was revealed to me that December, um, that I'm so grateful for is that our, our hope is in the giver of all gifts, not in the gift itself. Mm. Um, and as much as that might be a good thing, like a baby is not a bad thing to want, (laughs) you know, it's, it's not a, um, uh, you're not doing anything wrong by longing for that. But if that becomes the object of our peace and joy, the source of our peace and joy, then not only is that wrong, but we're, we're missing out. Um, Mm. because we don't ask necessarily because it changes our circumstances. We ask because it changes us. Um, and every, every time we pray, it has an opportunity to change our relationship with, with Christ or, or grow us closer to him. And we don't always receive what we are hoping mm. for, but we do receive him. And for me to start to recognize that as the prize, even though, of course, I'm disappointed and devastated and sad. And I go to God with some really raw questions um, that mm. I finally felt the freedom to ask. But to know that we that our ultimate hope is in the giver was a real turning point for me. And then knowing that a mentor told me this at this time, this exact week last year, probably a week ago to, or a year ago today, 
we had just gone through another really devastating loss. And he was talking about the lighting of the hope candle. And he said, you know, hope only gets deployed in times of struggle. And I thought, gosh, am I not grateful for this struggle? But I am so thankful to be a woman who knows hope. Yeah. And if if we only know it through, if we can only realize these truths or these, this transformation in the context of pain, yeah. Then goodness, am I glad (laughs) that I I get to know that hope um, and get to really see God as the giver of all gifts as my hope and not the gift itself. Yeah, that's good. Uh, thank you for that. Um, yeah, good stuff. You just have a way with words. You really do. Oh, you're kind. No, no, I seriously, seriously, <laughs> thank you. Uh, I, you keep talking and I'm like having to process it oh. like while you're talking. Um, oh, but, you're so uh, kind. Thank it was, you. Yeah, it was great. And it showed in the book too. I think it's, uh, it's really good stuff. So thanks for talking so about much. that. It's uh, absolutely thanks it, for letting me for sure, especially with Advent, right? It's like uh, yes. the waiting on a on a child, uh-huh. and yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a this is a time of year. It's become my favorite time of year because Christmas, for so many years, was so hard to connect to, sure. with everything being joyful and yeah. uh, you know opening up what we asked for, and you know there was so much about it that I just couldn't quite connect with the celebration of it other than the spiritual elements of it. Uh, But Advent, the, the longing and the not yet, and Mm. how do we find peace and joy in the midst of what hasn't happened? And how can we be reminded that, you know, Christmas is not an opportunity for us to climb closer to God's favor. It's an opportunity to celebrate that he stooped to our brokenness and our pain and he is here And sometimes our hope is Emmanuel, God is with us in this pain. Um, And that's the only hope I could see for, for a lot of years. So I, even though this year, you know, I have a three week old and a book coming out that I'm really excited about. (laughs) There's a lot to celebrate this time of year. Advent always has a special place in my heart and I never want to lose that. Yeah. I think uh, same for us. We were waiting th- uh, our adoption. We'd been waiting oh, for three years yes. and we oh, waited through goodness. Advent and every, every Advent was always just this, like, you know, you're waiting on this promised child. Absolutely. You know? and, um, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So you, you hold those, it's tension. There's, there's tension that I think Absolutely. we don't really see. Yeah. You get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. It's good. Well, are you ready to jump into our final two questions then? Sure. Okay, so my first question is, what is the strangest job that you have ever had? <laughs> um, so in terms of like an official, you know, W-9 or W-2 type job, um, they haven't been overly strange, but I did have this one, I did a ton of babysitting growing up um, and a ton of house sitting kind of those kind of jobs. And I had this one house sitting job. I couldn't, I certainly could not drive because I rode my bike there. Um, I, I was probably 13 or 14 and I hope this doesn't offend any of your listeners, but I, I have a fear of cats. (laughs) I think that's Um, fair. fair. (laughs) um, And I laugh when I, when I think about this job, because 
yeah, it was a house sitting job. I needed to water the plants and sort of get the mail and do all the traditional stuff that you do when you're keeping an eye on someone's house. But these people had a, a house sort of down, I grew up on a lake, so they had a house sort of down by the lake. And then they had this house up on the street, like up the driveway on the street. And that house was just for cats. No. Uh, yes. <laughs> it sounds like I'm making it up, but I swear I'm not. And one cat's name was Lucky and had their own room and closet and bathroom. And every cat had different personalities that I had to like learn so that I could feed them with the right protocol and, you know, do the litter boxes. And this is all while being afraid. Yeah. So I'm like just making myself gut through it and <laughs> hoping that they're not going to leap out of the closet. Cause I had that happen to me once. Um, I walked into a dark room and I think I startled the cat and it leapt out of the dark and scratched my face, which uh, didn't help. Yeah. With that's the not part. it. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. um, so, and it was like three weeks. It was not like a weekend trip I was house sitting for. It was a long time that they were away. And I look back on that and thinking, gosh, was it really worth it? <laughs> <laughs> I must have just, you know, really wanted that, uh, you know, money for something. Because yeah. goodness. Um, oh, my gosh. But it gave me good work ethic, I guess. And, uh, <laughs> you know, courage doing something while scared um but that is by far the strangest situation wow. I, I don't know many people including myself who could afford a house just for their cats yeah well you know i can i choose not to but exactly yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> not looking to house house for cats uh that is amazing i a house for cats sounds like the worst place in the world so yes um yes yeah. Okay. Well, that's a good one. I love it. Uh, okay. So my final question then is what is one piece of advice you would give to somebody looking to bring God's kingdom more into their work? Hmm. That's such a good question. I think what comes to mind when you ask that is not letting our own vision get in the way of God's provision. Hmm. I think I've made that mistake of coming into something like my counseling practice or like the writing of this book or currently the launching of this book and publishing <laughs> of this book and having a design for God um, on what it needs to look like. Yeah. Having a vision for it that I'm so married to. And I've made this mistake several times. I even write about it in the book too, where what I've realized is it keeps me from seeing the awesome provision that God is providing. And it keeps me from the joy of celebrating that because I'm just disappointed. It didn't look like my vision. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so whether it's a vocational ministry or whether you are bringing ministry into um, a job that is outside of vocational ministry, um, like a business, the business world, I think just, having open hands and trusting what well, ask the Holy spirit to move through what you're doing um, and be open handed with what that looks like. I know my husband, he works for Disney and ESPN. And so obviously we do very different things. And um, 
you know, he is so good at seeing, just asking God for opportunities to move in a mentoring relationship where they may never talk about God or faith or, but he is open about the fact that he goes to church and does not shy away from talking about faith when it comes up naturally Hmm. and the way that he loves people who work for him. uh, I know it's not lost on them. So he's just so good at being open-handed with what that ministry looks like. I have a lot to learn from him that way, Uh, (laughs) Uh, but not missing the, the provision when you're so married to your vision, I think is, is the biggest thing I would say. Yeah, that's good. I think that's great advice. Um, Yeah. Nicole, thank you so much. This was awesome. Thanks for having me. You're so fun to talk to. I'm glad it (laughs) finally worked out. Gosh, how long have we been talking? A year? Hey, but it was worth it, right? It was worth the wait. Worth the wait. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed uh, the interview with Nicole. I just, again, there is so much depth to this book and uh, she has so much wisdom. I think you're really going to enjoy it. So I just encourage you to go check it out. Uh, you can, I'll have all the links in the show notes where you can find all that stuff easily. But I really do think uh, it's something that, that we should all be reading. And these are things that we should all be thinking about. I'm definitely not the target demographic for this book being a 30 something uh, male, but uh, <laughs> I even got a lot out of it. And so uh, I think that there's something to be gleaned from this for everyone. And uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy um, just a quick reminder to scroll down to the bottom of your iTunes app and leave me a rating and review just to help get the word out about a theology of hustle. And until next time, get out there and hustle. Hustle.